because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today's show is entitled How Energy Innovation Works, and it's an interview with somebody I'm a big fan of, Matt Ridley. Matt wrote the book, The Rational Optimist, which was a big influence on my thinking about energy and about progress in general. If you haven't read that book, it's still a definite must read. I think it's 10 years now since it came out, but super valuable, super topical today. I think a lot of the the claims that it made and the predictions it made have definitely uh, come true. But Matt has a new book called How Innovation Works, and the subtitle is And Why It Flourishes Under Freedom. I've never had Matt on Power Hour before. I think I tried to get him years ago, but I wasn't able to. But uh, now I am uh, able to. I actually got to meet Matt in person several years ago. I think we were both speaking at an event in Texas, and it was really cool to meet him in person. The most memorable part, though, which is pretty funny, is that Matt is super tall. So I'm about six feet tall, but he's six six. So there's just some picture of us, which maybe I'll hunt down, where I think I look like a dwarf uh, compared to him. So yeah, it's really, you don't meet that many people, you know, outside an athletic context. Like when I was going to Duke, you know, we had these basketball players, but you expect them, but you don't expect one of your favorite writers to just be this uh, giant. So you won't be able to tell this uh, on the interview screen, even if, if you're uh, watching, but that's just a random funny uh, recollection of, of uh, meeting Matt. But I think you'll really enjoy this interview. And what we're going to be focused on is, is what we can learn from his book, which is broadly about how, how innovation works and what we can learn with energy. Now I'll say this, I just recorded the interview, so I know exactly what we cover. I'll say this probably after the interview as well, but we only cover just a small fraction of what's covered in the book. So if you're interested in innovation, definitely recommend checking out the book. And maybe in a future episode, maybe of Human Flourishing Project, I'll talk to him about some other aspects of it because there's certain areas where we may disagree, or at least I have questions about it. Um, but it is, it's super interesting and it's got a really interesting, a really valuable combination of a lot of stories about the history of innovation and then a lot of theoretical uh, analysis. And even if in places where I think I might diverge, he really makes a strong case. And that's, that's really what you want from a book, that it's really making a strong case for the ideas that it's putting forward, whether or not one ends up agreeing with them uh, fully or not. And certainly much of the book I do definitely agree with. So hope you enjoyed this interview with Matt Ridley, and I'll see you on the other side. I'm joined now by the great uh, Matt Ridley. Matt, welcome to Power Hour. Yeah, it's very nice to join the great Alex Epstein. <laughs> Is it Epstein uh, or Epstein? I can't remember, sorry. Uh, Epstein. I, I, like, I like to tell people it's like Einstein, which is, of course, the most self-aggrandizing uh, way to remember it, but yeah, it's like Einstein. There's a, there's a limerick about that. Do, do you want me What's to tell that? you it? There's a wonderful family called Stein. There's Eck and there's Ep and there's Ein. Uh-huh. <laughs> Eck sculptures are junk. No, sorry. X writings are junk, are bunk. Epp's sculptures are junk and nobody understands Ein. It's pretty good. Eckstein was a was a uh, a writer, and Epstein was a sculptor. I guess. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. I didn't I didn't know that. 
Okay. Well, let's go to the portion of this on more general interest. So you have, so I, I've talked about your, uh, one of your previous books, The Rational Optimist, uh, I'm sure many, many times, and I'm a big fan of that. You have a new book called How Innovation Works. And I have a bunch of questions about that. And I really want to focus on energy innovation, but just as background, what motivated you to write this book? The motivation was to zero in on the big theme of human history, because uh, I've danced around it in other books. Rational Optimist was about how the world's getting better, not worse, and that's as a result of exchange and specialization, which leads to innovation. Um, and the evolution of everything was about how everything in our society changes in a bottom-up way, not a top-down way. But this third book in the trilogy, if that's what it turns out to be, that wasn't the way I was thinking of it is about innovation itself. What is it? Why does it happen to us and not to uh, rabbits or rocks? Why is it uh, so uh, central to, to the human story? Um, uh, and in particular, where does it come from? You know, what makes it what makes it happen? And I just thought, you know what? There aren't good answers to these questions. So I still think it's a little bit mysterious, this phenomenon of innovation. Uh, we can rely on it to some extent, um, but it's pretty unpredictable. We don't really know how to, to make it happen. Uh, when we plan it, it doesn't usually turn out the way we want. Uh, and yet, uh, it's absolutely vital to us. So here's a here's a, a phenomenon that is responsible for a huge proportion of the prosperity we experience today, and we don't understand it. That seems to me a good topic for a book. Yeah, it's definitely motivating. So what is innovation? What's your definition of innovation? Well, I think um, I can answer that in two ways. One is to say that innovation, unlike invention, is making something that's useful, reliable, affordable, and available. So it's it's turning an idea into something that actually people can, can make use of. Um, but I think also at the book, I start with a kind of thermodynamic definition of innovation. And I feel that's quite an important place to start because um, in the end, what we are doing as human beings in the world is creating improbable structures. We're creating, you know, buildings and machines and um, uh, podcasts. You know, these are all improbably ordered and organized things. You know, the picture I'm looking at of you on the screen is not a fuzzy, random uh, piece of entropy. It's a very precise image of you. We achieve these things by putting energy into a system. We know, you know, we we know that, uh, you know, what you what, the way to reverse entropy and make things more ordered and less disordered is to put energy into them. You know, uh, when you enter a hotel room, you make it less ordered. When the maid comes and tidies it up, she makes it ordered. It's her energy that reintroduces the order into the room, as it were. Um, that's a pretty weird analogy, but you get you get the point. Um, uh, and um, so uh, so I I think that to think of innovation as the process of applying energy to creating imp improbable and useful structures in the world would be a definition that uh, that I could use. So can I tell you what I how I define it? And I want to know what you think. I can get feedback from uh, the master. I mean, I was thinking of two as I was reading through the book, and I haven't finished it yet, but I've read, I think, most of the theoretical points. I certainly read the part on, on energy, which was super interesting. So, I mean, I think of innovation as like an improvement in our ability to create value 
or mm-hmm. or it could be if you want to take it broader and not make it good, it would be like an increase in human ability. Because I, I think of it as like if you think of different kinds of innovations, it's okay, the cell phone improves, the innovation is it has this element of progress in it, right? It's like we we were at yep. a certain point and then we reached a new point. And then if value creation is the core of it, then, it, then I mean, it's related to everything because obviously our ability to create value today is literally exponential, compare, exponentially greater than it was 100 years ago, you know, let alone a um, yep. thousand years yep. ago. And then the reason I think of it in terms of increase in ability is it, it accounts for these cases where you talk about, well, certain you're saying certain innovations aren't necessarily good. So you could think of like, oh, we develop a capability or it's at least used um, in a negative way. But the core to me seems to be an increase in our ability to create value. I think that's exactly right. If you substitute for the word value, the word usefulness, it's roughly the same as I've been saying, you know, mm. that it is useful. But I like your progressive point because, you know, when you think about it, the, the, the purpose of a car is to enable you to travel faster. The purpose of a phone is to enable you to speak to people who are not next to you. Um, I mean, this afternoon I was out walking in the woods and I saw a flower that I didn't know the name of. And so I used an app on my phone to uh, take a picture of it and instantly get the name of the flower from the cloud. It's the, this app does this. It you know it recognizes the, the mm. flower and gives you the name. Um, and and I was just thinking as I was walking along, th- this is you know to to to, to 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 somebody even twenty years ago, this is indistinguishable from magic. This yeah. is extraordinary. I mean you know not only has uh, sort of bunch of silicon uh, created a uh, uh, an image, but that image has then been sent through the sky somehow, through the air, to somewhere else where it has found where you know I mean where was the server where the information was how was it searched you know what's the algorithm that enables it to pin down what type of flower it is. That is, you know, if that's not artificial intelligence, I don't know what is, you know. Um, so um, we, we sometimes aren't sufficiently amazed at what innovation has done for us and continues to do for us. Yeah, well, I want to pick up on the idea of improbable because I have a slightly different way of thinking about it, but I think it'll, it leads to the kind of appreciation you're talking about, whereas I think of it a lot as unnatural in the mm-hmm. sense of, because I'm very at war with nature worship. Which I like, I love nature, but the idea that, you know, nature as in non human nature is perfect and everything human beings do, uh, do ruins it. And I just like to think about even something like the house I'm in. Like, nature didn't intend me to have this protection. Nature didn't intend for me to be able to live and have abundant food even near the beach in a fairly desert type area in California. Like that was all human ingenuity. And ultimately it was this progression of innovation. So I, I love looking at the world and just thinking, you know, the re- nature didn't want this to happen, but human beings uh, wanted it to happen. And so we, and without us, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Except uh, I also in the book say, and I, this is a slightly different perspective to what you're saying there, that biological life is in the same game. Uh, mm. It is creating structures. It's creating coral reefs and elephant bodies and trees. You know, all of, and a tree is just yeah. as amazing as a building. Um, and it's doing so through innovation. 
the innovation is genomic innovation as opposed to technological innovation. But when you think about it, they're both using energy to reverse entropy, to create improbable but to them useful structures. They're both creating rather beautiful results um, that are appealing and improbable and ordered and valuable, to use your word. Um, there is no difference. Our technology is, in a sense, just the latest iteration of um, uh, evolution. It, you know, ev evolution produced um, uh, corals which build coral reefs, and it produced humans which build cities. Um, yeah. I don't, in the end, see much of a distinction there. So, so uh, you know, I hope this doesn't make me sound like a sort of um, fuzzy nature worshipper, but I, I think in a way this is quite helpful to say, look, our technology is just the latest version of what nature is producing in the way of non-entropic improbability. <laughs> I mean, one one thing I don't like when I talk about things as unnatural is is I do, and I don't think we quite have the right vocabulary for this because I think of human beings as, in a sense, we're the most capable part of nature, but I think of us as totally natural. And to talk about nature without human beings doesn't make sense. Today, today's earth, you know, I think of it as if the Martian, if there were Martians and they saw us, they wouldn't think, oh, those buildings are unnatural. They'd say the human beings build the best nests. Exactly. And um, I, I'm reminded of this as, as a keen naturalist all the time. If I want to see, uh, you know, rare birds or interesting flowers, uh, I will go to places that are managed to produce these rare birds and flowers mm. that people have people have made a pond or they've planted a wood or or whatever now you know left to itself nature would where i live would produce a pretty monolithic you know um, monochrome uh, oak forest that would stretch for thousands of miles hundreds of mm. miles uh, there wouldn't be open meadows um there wouldn't be farmland there wouldn't be ponds um, and lakes um uh, and there certainly wouldn't be gardens so um I, I i do think that we we completely misunderstand the degree to which in creating by we actually create biodiversity you know we create more diverse habitats more diverse um, ecosystems by the way we manage the landscape um uh, and, you know, we make patchworks, you know, one area is wooded, the next area is not, you know, the, the, this is much more varied than nature would produce. So I, I do think of us as a gardening species. Now we can make mess along the way. But there again, I was talking to a friend at the weekend who said that uh, um, when they redeveloped the London Docklands and they bulldozed a lot of concrete to make the sort of base of it, uh, they ended up having to collect uh, 1,500 poisonous snakes called adders from the, the ruins, which had taken up life there. So, you know, living things are enjoying our cities. You know, they're, they're there. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not uh, shying away from it. One, one final perspective on this kind of domain before we get into energy is maybe part of what I think distinguishes the way you think about nature and the way that the green movement thinks about it is you seem really interested in nature as a process, 
in terms of how things evolve. And I have the same feeling. Like the thing I love about nature is just how it creates different things in different circumstances versus the static state of what nature happened to be 10 years ago. So I think of the mainstream green movement as yeah. fundamentally conservative. It's just whatever the state was before we got here 10 years ago, that's good. And then anything we do is bad versus I think of it as what's amazing about nature and beautiful is the processes by which it works. And that's going to produce ever-changing things. I completely agree with that. It drives me crazy how little the uh, many, many uh, environmentalists think in dynamic terms. They think mm. in static terms all the time. We must preserve this. We must stop this. We must... Uh, keep this. It's not like that. We must encourage these processes. And there's there's change going on all the time. And there's this weird thing that, you know, if a species has changed in abundance, then there's a problem. Mm. Well, no, species come and species go. Um, you know, where I sit, uh, just 12,000 years ago, which is not very long ago, there was about a mile of ice over my head. <laughs> that came and went. Uh, it went away. We got, as a result, we got, uh, you know, tundra. That tundra then changed to birch forest, which changed to pine forest, which changed to oak forest. And then it got very, very warm, um, much warmer than today in summer. Uh, and then it cooled down again. And at that point, peat bogs started forming on the uplands because it was too cool and wet in the summer for the uh, vegetation to rot um, and so on. You know, and, and it will go on changing. And, and it's not just those thousand year time scales. I mean, I'm uh, I, I'm constantly noticing things that are changing on year to year time scales. You know, things that that that, you know, birds change their habits um, sudden, you know, for, for a long time, uh, starlings were roosting in cities in the UK and then people didn't like this cause they left their droppings all over the place. So they sort of netted off the buildings. The starling numbers fell. Now starlings have gone back to roosting in reed beds and their numbers are growing again. You know, th these are the kind of, as you say, it's, it's, it's process, it's dynamic, it's changing. And I wish people would understand nature as as a, as a as a movement rather than a thing. Mm, yeah, I like that a lot. So let's talk about energy. I mean, one really distinctive feature of I think your approach to innovation and progress is I think I mean I I tend to be a monomaniac about energy because I write about it primarily. You write about a lot of things, and yet you give energy a central role. And in, in particular, your first topic, your first area of innovation that you're studying is is energy and you mentioned that is one of the most crucial innovations is the ability to go from heat to work so i'll let you talk about that and then then we'll talk about some of the specific innovations within energy but why is this the central area of innovation that you're so focused on well if you think about it why did what, what was the industrial revolution you know what what was the central sort of theme of it and we don't really know, and there's lots of talk about it being, you know, discovering innovation or, you know, getting the snowball rolling down the hill of, of more and more technology. Um, but when you come down to it, what happened in the early 1700s in the UK that that helped every other industry and every other technology was a breakthrough in energy. Um, we had heat before. We got it from wood and we got it from coal. And we use that heat to warm our buildings or to melt metal ores and smelt metals and things like that. But it was always used as heat. 
and we had work before we had um wind and water and oxen and people doing work physically moving things building castles or whatever it might be or harvesting crops you know this was work done by these different actors and there was no connection between these two worlds the world of heat and the world of work nobody would have thought of them as both being defined by the word energy that concept wasn't there mm. but then along comes the first steam engines in the early 18th century in the early 1700s and uh, suddenly what they're doing is making the heat do work because what the heat does is it boils water which makes steam the steam is put into a condenser when it uh, condenses the a vacuum is created that creates a suction force which pulls on a uh, a piston which is attached to a lever uh, at the other end of which is a pump pulling water out of a hole in the ground so suddenly tsh, boom tsh, boom tsh, boom you are sort of sucking water out of the ground you're doing actual work you're doing what was previously done by a horse going around in circles pulling a pump um uh, but with heat and from then on we moved to more and more of our energy coming from heat but doing work we stop you heat still does heating you know heat, we still heat our buildings and so on but most of what we use heat for these days is to do work and you know when you fly a uh, plane across the atlantic you are basically in a machine that is a direct descendant of that device that i just um described uh, i mean it's internal combustion rather than external and all this kind of thing but it's it's basically a um uh, a flame a burning of fuel creating heat expanding air that's pushing air out the back of the jet which is pushing the plane forward that may not be the most high-flown distinction of what's happening in a jet engine but it's it's roughly true so so this this discovery of how to harness heat to do work i think unleashed the most extraordinary number of possibilities and without doing that we wouldn't have been able to get anywhere. And I think that's why previous industrial revolutions never got off the ground, whether in China or ancient Greece or um, Renaissance Italy or somewhere like that. You know, you could build a lot of machines and so on, but until you could find a new source of energy that was near limitless, which is what coal turned out to be, by the way, uh, then, you could, then you couldn't really, uh, you, you hit diminishing returns. I mean, it's interesting if you just think about what was occupying people's time throughout most of history. And you look at things like 80% of people are farmers or people spending 80% of their income on food. I mean, so much of it is food and water. And heat is involved in that in terms of cooking, and, but it's primarily physical work. And so you, you just think about ultimately what you do with steam engines and then internal combustion engines and diesel engines is you take away the manual, you know, most of humans' manual labor and you allow us to do it with machine labor, and then that 80% of our time gets largely freed up. And so that means we can specialize in other things and we have time to innovate. So I just, I just see it yeah. as that without being able to transfer heat to work or some other way of figuring out how to get work done by an external source, we're spending all of our, most of our time on food and water. Yeah, I, years ago, I think I mentioned this in Rational Optimist, but I, I came across some very interesting records that have been analyzed by historians of a medieval abbey in southern England and uh, the agriculture that they'd been practicing at this uh, monastery. Um, uh, and basically, in a, in a good year, they harvested four or five seeds 
from every seed they had planted, right? You put one mm-hmm. seed in the ground and a few months later you harvest four or five seeds. Now you've got to keep one of those seeds back for next year's planting, of course. Mm-hmm. So that leaves you with three or four. Um, and in a bad year, by the way, you're only harvesting three. So you're, that leaves you with two. Now those two have got to um, feed you all winter. They've got to fuel your work. And that work consists not just of look, you know, um, uh, digging the ground and so on, but it also consists of the work you do for the Lord whose castle, or in this case, the abbot whose, whose uh, monks are worshipping in the um, uh, church that you're helping to build. You know, every time you put a stone on top of another stone, you're burning a little bit more of that barley. Um, uh, now, that margin is incredibly thin. I live on a farm. It's farmed for me by someone else. I own the land, but there's a contract arrangement. Um, I go out into a wheat field when I discovered this thing, and I, I pull up a wheat plant that's grown from one seed, and it's got two or three tillers, and each has got one head, and each head has got a number of seeds. And I count the seeds, and I'm bowled away. From one seed, I'm getting nearly about 100 seeds. Wow. So that's 99 seeds that I don't have to put back in the ground, which I can use to feed me, uh, et cetera. Um, but where's the energy coming from for that plant to be so productive? Um, it's mostly coming from the sunlight. But the fixing of nitrogen from the air using fossil fuels is enabling that to happen. The fossil fuels in the tractor is enabling that to happen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that's quite a nice way of thinking about it, that you need this surplus energy always to make these improbable structures. Um, I've got a friend called John Constable who's very, very good at thinking about the, the economy in a thermodynamic way, and he's influenced me enormously on this. Interesting. What what's what are his books or resources to read? Um, John hasn't yet written a book, which is a tragedy. Um, but uh, uh, he's he's written pamphlets and essays, and he he thinks about this a lot, and he does a lot of blogging. He's got a a, a charity called the Renewable Energy Foundation. Now you might think that that supports renewable energy, but actually it's got a very clear-eyed view of renewable energy. It points out that a lot of the economic case for renewable energy is is uh, uh, is is not uh, as good as it should be. Interesting. I'll check it out. Okay, so I want to jump into a, f- a few specific uh, issues within energy innovation, just to set this up. I mean, everybody from any political spectrum will say, I'm in favor of innovation in energy. There's nobody who says, oh, I'm against innovation in energy. I don't want to see this. So some people are very focused on lowering CO2 emissions. Other people are just more focused on increasing the cost effectiveness uh, of energy. And I thought I would look at an interesting case and, and to see your analysis of it. And that would be the case of shale energy or what we could call fracking for short. And just to set it up, I mean, I think the narrative we often hear is that this was created by wise government planning. So there are, you know, certain government planners and they decided this was a promising field. And so they gave valuable R&D money. And then that led to these discoveries. And then all of these capitalists were able to to leverage these discoveries. 
And But had it not been for the wise guiding hand of these government uh, officials, we wouldn't have had this revolution. And then this is, this is then a preview of everything else. Like if only we invest more in government innovation, then we're going to have comparable breakthroughs, hopefully in most people's view, not in oil and gas, but in renewables. So you have a different version of the story. So I'm, I'd like you to talk about what your version is. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm gobsmacked by this myth out there that the government started the shale gas revolution uh, because it doesn't seem to me to fit the facts. I mean, all over the world, there are government run oil and gas industries. You know, most countries have nationalized industries. You know, um, the big American oil firms are not the biggest firms in the world. They're dwarfed by the Saudi one, the Mexican one, the Brazilian one and these kind of things. But these are nationalized companies. So if nationalized oil industries were going to innovate, then you'd expect it to happen uh, in another country than the United States, where the, where the government does not own the oil or gas industry. Um, and yeah, you might say, well, in the, it might happen in the big companies and the big companies in cahoots with universities and so on. Um, uh, and then you might go to some of the research institutes and say, actually, you know, these guys were working on stuff to do with fracking. And you say, well, why were they working on stuff to do with fracking? Because industry had come to them and said, we're developing this new technology. We want to understand how it works. and We want your help developing some of these things. Um, uh, would you like a, a grant to help with this work? Um, and they all said yes. Um, so uh, it really reads it the wrong way around. Now, the reason I'm confident I know that that is the case um, is because if you examine how the hydraulic fracturing revolution got going in the 1990s. Um, you have to zero in on Mitchell Energy, this company in, in near Fort Worth that was working on the Haynes, uh, no, the, um, can't remember the name of the, the, the shale formation. Um, uh, and George Mitchell had founded this company uh, and he was in a bit of a bind. He was, uh, he had a had some very lucrative contracts to supply gas from this field to elsewhere in the United States, um, uh, but at, at a good price, but he couldn't get any more gas out of the field. And he said, I just, I know there's gas down there because there's all these shales and there's stuff full of the gas, but we can't get it to flow out of the shale. How are we going to do this? And he, he turned to lots of different people and they tried lots of different things and they knew that the, the, the solution would come if they could crack the rock. But cracking the rock with gel and sand, which then props open the um, uh, the pores in the rock, um, the cracks, um, works quite well with tight sandstones, but it doesn't work so well with shales. Uh, and then one day, uh, a guy called Nick Steinsberger, kind of by mistake, uh, stumbled on a recipe that worked much better. And it basically involved much less chemical, much less gel, basically just water, with a bit of uh, sort of uh, soapy stuff in it so that it, um, uh, it it's it's kind of slimy rather than sticky. Um, and the water under enormous pressure will crack the rock. And if you put the sand in second, instead of putting the sand down with the water, it will then rush in and hold open the cracks. Um, I've simplified the story hugely. There's a lot of twists and turns. But basically, these are wildcat firms you know, they're not the big oil or gas majors. These are people trying new recipes, doing trial and error again and again and again. Now, at this point, they need to understand what's going on. Uh, and they do get Sandia Laboratories and all sorts of other nationalized uh, university and 
government-funded laboratories to help them understand what's going on underground. And eventually that does help uh, improve it. But the notion that this started with government funding, it just misreads it in my view. So people like Mike Meyerhofer and Nick Steinsberger, who uh, are the real uh, heroes behind this story, and Chris Wright and people like that, uh, they tell a very different story from uh, this idea that the whole thing started with government spending. I mean, it might strike people as a little scary or almost too fortuitous, kind of how almost randomly it was some of the key things were figured out because you mentioned in terms of just figuring out what's the actual mix, it turns out it's just somebody experimenting. So this raises the broader issue of what are the what are the main things that lead to innovation that may be counterintuitive or unknown? Because I think that there's a general, there's, I think there's just this general idea that like often it's the farsighted government does basic research and then that inexorably translates into all of these magical innovations. And so if we want more innovation, the number one thing we need to focus on is government-funded research. But you, you have much different dynamics that you talk about. Yes, I think the view that, that you fund science in order to produce innovation uh, is generally mistaken. Not because science can't produce innovation, of course it can, um, but because a lot of innovation doesn't happen that way. It happens by tinkering within industries and technologies that then leads to breakthroughs, uh, which then have to be explained by science. So quite often the arrow goes in the other direction. It goes from technology to science. If you think of thermodynamics, uh, it's a science that comes out of steam engines. If you think of chemistry, it's a science that comes out of the dye industry. Funnily enough, the relationship between uh, genome editing, the, the CRISPR technology, uh, and industry is not one where it starts in academia and then goes to industry. Um, uh, a very early uh, developer of the concepts behind it was the yogurt industry, trying to understand why their bacteria got sick and so on. Mm. So the relationship between science and technology is reciprocal. It, it, it goes both ways. Um, uh, and it's also important to understand that um, having the original germ of an idea isn't... 50% of the work, it's 1%. I mean, this is what Einstein meant when he said, sorry, not Einstein, uh, Edison. Edison meant when he said that it's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, um, uh, in my view. So um, uh, I, I think that uh, the, the, the linear model that you invest in science in order to produce technology is wrong. I mean, I'm great. I'm all for investing in science. I love science. I think it's the greatest of human achievements. Uh, but I think it devalues it to say its only job is to produce new technologies, new applications. Uh, it's it's a great cultural flowering. It's like art, science. It's you know, it, we want to understand the universe and the uh, deep geological time and you know the the, the structure of the gene and so on. The, these we, we want to understand these, but the way we're going to understand it is by developing new technologies as much as vice versa. Interesting. I, I'm tempted to talk about science because I, I think they're just huge hazards in government funding of science that are related to hazards in government funding of, of industry. But I want to, uh, maybe I want to talk, let's talk about the example of nuclear, because I think this also brings out some elements of innovation. And then I want to talk more broadly about the role of freedom in energy innovation. So, so do you have a really interesting analysis of nuclear and why nuclear progress has been slow 
despite the fundamentals of the technology being very exciting in terms of the energy density of the raw uh, material mm -hmm. and the yep. promise that it seemed to show in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So why is it that, I mean, this is an, this is an industry where it's become considerably more expensive in several yep. decades yep. counter. So what's, yep. what do you see as going on yep. there as it relates to innovation? Well, the nuclear electricity was going to be too cheap to meter. That was the sort yeah. of the slogan in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and uh, it turned out not to be true. It got more and more expensive. Um, and not only did it get more and more expensive, it ceased innovating. I mean, we haven't really changed the basic design of nuclear power stations in decades. There has been tweaks here and there, but it's hardly improving. There's lots of ideas about how to do so. Um, there are molten salt reactors, molten metal reactors. There are uh, inherently safe reactors. There are, um, uh, you know, just all sorts of lovely, lovely designs out there. And, and somebody put it to me in the industry, they're all PowerPoint reactors. In other words, you yeah, know, all they've ever expression. got to is the PowerPoint stage. Why don't they come forward? You know, why doesn't someone build a completely new design of reactor that leaves behind the old light water technology, pressurized water reactor that was developed in a hurry in the 50s as an out, uh, as, as, a, as a side product of the um, weapons industry, mm -hmm. uh, and which has all sorts of inherent problems, like the fact that water turns to a gas when you heat it above a certain temperature if you don't keep it pressurized which reduces its ability to act as a coolant you know etc you know there are, it's not a great design we know there are better designs out there thorium reactors all these kind of things um uh, and the reason is because if you design a new reactor design these days you have to get it licensed and the licensing process in the united states also in the united kingdom and pretty well everywhere in the world is unbelievably expensive and time-consuming it'll take you at least a decade and at least a hundred million dollars to get the license to build it i'm not talking about to build it i'm talking about the, to get permission to build it um and generation after generation have added to this licensing process till it's got incredibly cumbersome uh, and extreme and when you get to the end of that process and you've got your brand new thorium molten salt reactor ready to go and you want to build it, um, uh, you then find that you have to stick to the absolute letter of the design that you've mm. come up with. You have to put every nut and bolt exactly where you said you were going to put it. Because if you don't, you've got to go back to square one. Well, not quite square one, but you've got to go back and start all over again with the design. And... Um, it's that process that has cut the nuclear industry off from the, uh, the, the, the habit of trial and error, the habit of uh, tinkering and changing your mind as you go forward, the habit of learning from doing, um, which is absolutely integral to innovation. Uh, imagine if you had to design the next generation of computer in the same way and you had to specify absolutely everything in advance, 10 years in advance, what, you, what the computer you, you wanted to put on the market in 10 years' time would be, it would be a hopeless task because you wouldn't know what you'd learn along the way uh, and you wouldn't be able to change your mind as you, as you went forward. Um, so I think that's the difference between nuclear and uh, many other technologies. It's, it's been cut off from the process of innovation. And this is, of course, all in the name of safety, 
But if anything, it's detracted from the safety of nuclear. Nuclear is an incredibly safe technology. It kills fewer people per uh, kilowatt of energy, kilowatt hour of energy it produces than any other electrical or uh, energy technology. I mean, solar and wind kill far more people per unit of energy produced. Um, uh, so, but it, it does so at enormous cost um, uh, and huge over-engineering and, as I say, an impossibility of uh, designing improvements. Now, we must find a way to come up with a nimbler, better, more reactive regulatory system that will be just as safe for the next generation of nuclear power. For example, if we get to fusion and we do have a working prototype of a fusion reactor, the first time we go and build it, we cannot say this is exactly the design you're going to build in 10 years' time and it can't change because that would cut us off from learning and improving. Yeah, I think this is just so important. It's uh, It really vindicates part of what I've been thinking with nuclear, which may be my next book after I do Moral Case for Fossil Fuels 2.0, which is, it'd be the moral case for nuclear, but I think the real right. focus is policy. You need a policy for decriminalizing nuclear energy so that people can innovate, you know, so people can be inventing in their garage. Cause you just look at, I mean, one thing that just strikes me reading your book is just how many, like in making an innovation work, just how many little details there are that nobody knows in advance and that you have to figure out yourself and that other people are improving on. It's just this incredibly intricate system. And the idea that you're going to know it in advance exactly, and then you're going to plan it out 10 years and you're not allowed to improve it. It's just, you know, one is what I would call, you know, innovation at the speed of thought and the other is like innovation at the speed of of government and it's just two totally different things i i think that's exactly right and 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 i think uh, uh you know this is a real cautionary tale uh, about our current approach to technology and civilization is you know we we have We've done something similar to genetically modified crops mm, in yeah. the European Union in particular. Pretty well done it everywhere now. Uh, you know, we've just slowed down the regulatory process so much. And a lot of the opponents of technology know this. They know that if you can argue for more time, say, look, I don't think five years is quite quick and, you know, is yeah. is, is is I think that's too quick. I, I think we need ten years before we're sure about this. Let's let's have another review, etc. You kill the entrepreneurs. Because the entrepreneurs cannot survive 10 years uh, of waiting for permission to do something. Um, so uh, a lot of the opponents use delay deliberately to try and uh, stop innovation happening. The, you know, the subtitle of your book is it's how innovation works and how it flourishes under freedom. Talk about why freedom is so crucial to innovation. And, and let's focus specifically on energy innovation. Well, um, for for innovation to happen, people have got to be free to try new things for a start. They've got to be free to change their mind halfway through. Uh, they've got to be free to go off in an unexpected direction because an awful lot of energy, uh, sorry, of innovation is serendipitous. It, it, the, the solutions come from unexpected directions. Uh, the project takes a different turn. It starts off doing one thing and then uh, ends up doing uh, another. Um, uh, so um, we talked about that with respect to shale gas, you know, that, that 
uh, a couple of accidents uh, in a sort of unusual situation led to a breakthrough that has completely changed the, the world energy scene, banished any idea that we're going to run out of gas or oil, um, uh, all from a sort of unexpected little problem in and around the city of Fort Worth with a small oil, with a small gas company. Um, uh, so um, freedom, the freedom to, to play, to try different things, to experiment, to be wrong, uh, to try again, uh, the freedom to invest where you think you should invest, uh, you know, what was crucial for the shale gas revolution was the fact that there were deep-pocketed investors who were prepared to um, uh, allow this company free reign to keep trying things until it eventually hit on a breakthrough. Um, so um, in the end, all the, the things that I identify as being important to allow innovation to happen, they all depend on freedom in one form or another. And that's why you do not see innovation happening in unfree societies. You know, empires are really bad at innovation. The Ming Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Soviet uh, Union, these centrally organized, centrally planned, huge organizations, they, they like to control what people think and what people do. And as a result, they stifle innovation very effectively. You know, I mean, they really, really do. They kill of innovation very, very quickly. So um, uh, it's no accident that innovation is happening at any one time in the part of the world where people are freest. And California has been such a place for most of uh, history, uh, for most of the last few decades anyway. Uh, and at one time, Britain was such a place. And at one time, you know, the city states of northern Italy were, were such a place place where you could, you know, literally wake up in the morning and decide what you were going to do without being told what to do. That's a surprisingly rare feature of human life. It's not often be the case. Now, the paradox, of course, is how China became an innovative society again uh, in the last few decades. Uh, it's not a free place at all. It's an authoritarian regime that tries to control people's uh, thought. But it's surprisingly free for the entrepreneur if he doesn't annoy the Communist Party. Um, better still, if he bribes the Communist Party, I suspect. Can't prove that, but you see what I mean. <laughs> so uh, as long as you're not trying to do political innovation, China is a very good place to be in, to be free to innovate, to try something new. To you know, the number of petty regulations you've got about building a, a factory or or designing a new widget are surprisingly few uh, in China. I think that's changing fast now. I mean, I think that was true between the liberalization of Deng Xiaoping uh, and the rise of Xi Jinping. But Xi is not a uh, freedom-loving individual. I think that's a safe thing to say after what's happened in recent months, particularly in Hong Kong and elsewhere. Um, and he is building a dirigist, top-down, centralized, imperial um, uh, country. It's an empire. And uh, he's just like one of the Ming emperors. And he will therefore kill innovation. It'll have to go somewhere else. Yeah, I think it's really important that when you're studying something like innovation and freedom, that you you have nuance in terms of a country can be free in certain respects and not in others. And there can be pockets of freedom versus they suppress this kind of intellectual freedom. Therefore, freedom can't explain anything positive versus no, they could actually be freer than we are uh, 
in certain ways. I think certainly in certain kinds of development, people in China have been freer than uh, than people in the U.S. One final topic I want to talk about, which you talk about, I think, in Chapter 11, is just the historical opposition to innovation. And maybe one aspect to focus on you raised earlier that comes up with nuclear and that comes up with some of the genetic technologies is people tend to view it as cautious and prudent to slow innovation. And my perspective is nothing could be less cautious because I think of it as we all only have a certain amount of time to live. Even those of us in the wealthy world, our lives could improve a lot, certainly with certain medical technologies. There are billions of people who have almost nothing uh, by our standards. So I think of it as anything we do that stops innovation is shortening people's lives and giving them less opportunity. But the prevailing view is that when we think of any innovation, all we can think of is what could go wrong and then we should you know, stop it. Yeah. Well, th this is embodied in the concept of the precautionary principle, mm, yeah. which, uh, you know, at, at a superficial level is a reasonable idea. You know, better safe than sorry. Don't do harm if you can help it. But the way it's been interpreted very deliberately and very specifically in recent decades has been uh, a total perversion of that. Uh, and what it now says, the precautionary principle, is um, weigh up the risks of an innovation and if they're greater than zero uh, then don't do it and you say well hang on what about the risks of the technology we're using now don't they come into it they might be greater than the risks of the new technology no 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 forget those we we, we live with those we're used to those this new technology must have no risks and then you say, well, what about the benefits this new technology might bring? Can't, isn't there a cost-benefit analysis yet? No, no. You must talk about the potential harm, the hazards that can come from this in invention. That's what the precautionary principle says. It says think only of the bad things that might happen, not of the good things that might happen, including the displacement of an inadequate technology that is causing people death today. Uh, and so under the precautionary principle, you would not invent cars. You would not invent aspirin. These things have or fire. Risks. Or say fire. You wouldn't or invent fire. fire. You certainly wouldn't invent fire or the wheel. <laughs> exactly. So um, uh, the precautionary principle. Uh, I think Ronald Bailey has said this, and others too. Uh, essentially says, never do anything for the first time. I mean, it really is that bad. <laughs> That's good. Uh, it's it's basically a, a an instruction to um, uh, to stick with the technology we've we've got and not complain about them. You know, they're saying, "Don't you dare tell me that um, uh, pesticides are bad, um, and we could have genetically modified crops that don't need spraying. Um, pesticides are fine." Well, I'm sorry, they're not fine. You know, I'm enough of an environmentalist to say I don't want to have to spray chemicals on crops. I'd much rather we had insect-resistant crops that don't need insecticide spraying on them. Um, but that's what they're saying. So, you know, I've been sometimes been accused of being a Panglossian, and Dr. Pangloss in um, Voltaire's story of Candide is a, uh, a, a, a sort of caricature of, of Leibniz, a man who goes around saying everything is for the best in the best mm -hmm. of all possible worlds. That's not what I'm saying, and it's not what you're saying. We're saying this world is great compared with what it was, but it's a veil of tears compared with what it could be. Yeah, That's what we're saying. Um, so the, the very word optimist coined by Voltaire in that book um, used to mean someone who thinks the world's perfect and it can't be improved because God made it. And the book mocks this idea and says, 
How dare you say this world is perfect? Look, you know, 60,000 people have died in an earthquake in, in Portugal, which had just happened when Voltaire wrote it. You know, how can that be a good thing? Come on, you know. No, no, God must have um, decided that they uh, were evil, so he got rid of them. So he's right. God's always right. So that's the way it is. That's the way Greenpeace talks about the world today. Greenpeace talks about the world as saying, how dare you come up with a new device that might um, save a quarter of a million children's lives a year by uh, putting a, a simple gene inside rice so that they get their vitamin A deficiency is redressed. Golden rice, yeah. Golden rice. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but that is Panglossian to say, no, we can't improve the world. Gaia made it exactly as it is, and we mustn't change it. That is yeah. cruel. Yeah, like I think that that chapter in your book is... is I mean, they're all valuable. But that's a particularly valuable one. You have all sorts of great examples of historical opposition to innovation, which I think is is great for making the following point. I think the you know the modern green movement, or as I'll sometimes call it, the anti-human impact movement, they'll focus on new technologies because it's easier to demonize the new. So they'll focus on fracking. They'll focus on nuclear. You know, they'll focus on GMO. Insofar as these are are new, but really their core premise is that the planet is unimprovable. And so that applies yes. not just to the new, but to the old. And you can see they're opportunistic about focusing on the new, but then they want to get right to the old. They want to get rid of, so not let you experiment with nuclear, but also get rid of fossil fuels and not just prevent you from experimenting with insect resistant crops, but also get rid of pesticides, get rid of mechanization uh, of agriculture. So it's just this whole anti, I mean, anti-innovation movement, ultimately anti-value creation movement. I just think your, your book is super valuable in terms of giving historical context where I think people can see, oh, if we had listened to Greenpeace in 1800 or 1800 BC, <laughs> where would we be? Yeah. And, and I mean, I bring this to the fore in this section on the opposition to coffee. Um, coffee oh yeah, that's innovation. a good one. Coffee was an innovation in the 1500s, and wherever it turned up in the Middle East and Europe, it was banned. It was banned because vested interests wanted it banned. The wine and beer industry didn't like a new competitor. They funded research by university medics. This happened in, I think it was Marseille, um, uh, who produced a pamphlet which argued that coffee was dangerous and should be banned. Uh, because it dried up the kidneys, whatever that meant. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, this was blatant, uh, blatantly the sort of thing the environmental movement does today. It, it, you know, research that is bought and paid for to prove a point that you don't want an innovation. Um, but it was, coffee was also opposed by rulers because uh, coffee tends to be drunk in coffee houses because you tend to, you know, you want to go somewhere where you get it properly ground and made into coffee freshly for you. And if you go to a coffee house, there's a lot of people, they're a bit wired, they've got caffeine running through their veins, they're talking quite a lot. Um, so these tend to be places where people meet and talk. And indeed, the Royal Society is born as a, out of a coffee house as a result. Um, but hang on, the rulers say, if people are meeting in coffee houses and talking, what are they talking about? Oh, my God, they might talk about whether I'm doing a good job as ruler. Can't have that. We must ban this. And there's a marvelous proclamation King Charles II of, of England did in 1672 um, where he's banning all coffee houses. And he's very explicit about it. He says, the reason I'm doing this is because people are lying in them. 
People are going in there and they're talk, telling stories about me and they're lying. It's fake news. He doesn't like it. Just like they're doing on social media now. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, there's tons more we can talk about, but we need to wrap up soon. So um, let me ask, any any final insights about innovation that particularly people in energy should be aware of that we haven't discussed so far? Um, I think one of the most important ones respecting energy is that an innovation that raises the price of something without improving the quality uh, is a waste of time. Mm. Uh, innovations have to be acceptable to the consumer. Uh, and one of the things that really worries me about our policies today, particularly in uh, Europe, uh, is that we are choosing particular technologies and saying these are the ones we like, and we're liking them on grounds that are not good for the consumer. So we're, you know, in my country, we're investing a huge amount in heavily subsidizing the wind industry to create huge wind turbines. These are very unpopular locally. People don't like the effect they have on the landscape. But more to the point, these are destabilizing the electricity grid. So they are um, uh, actually uh, making it more likely that the lights will go out. And last August they did because of an effect of wind, too many wind turbines uh, on the system. Um, they are also putting up the price of electricity. Because energy is a bigger part of the budget of poor people than rich people, this is a regressive tax, effectively. So innovations have to be what the consumer wants. And in this case, we are denying the consumer what he wants, which is reliable and affordable energy. Um, and we're doing so because we think, largely wrongly, that this is a way of getting carbon dioxide emissions down. In fact, they're rather bad at that too, but that's another question. There's another example that tells this story quite well, which is that we we bumbled along with incandescent light bulbs for decades. Mm. The government then came along and said, no, we're going to ban these and we're going to force you to have compact fluorescent bulbs. And the consumer said, whoa, I don't like this thing. Its light is a different color. It takes a couple of seconds to warm up. Uh, it's very expensive to buy. Okay, it uses less electricity, but you know, if it doesn't last long enough, then I'm not I'm not better off. Uh, and it's also very difficult to dispose of. It's quite toxic. Um, why are you making me buy this thing? Within 10 years, that decision by governments all around the world to force um, consumers to buy a technology they didn't want to buy was redundant and dead because a new technology had come along called the light-emitting diode, LEDs, which is has all the qualities of incandescence uh, and uh, none of the disadvantages of compact fluorescence and uses even less energy. And for a long time it was expensive, but it's now not uh, as expensive. So if only we'd waited, and probably LEDs would have been perfected sooner if we hadn't forced been, been forced into this dead end of compact fluorescent bulbs. It's a really shocking episode, actually, and it's never been properly shown up for what it what it what it is, which is governments deciding on an innovation that was unpopular with consumers. The consumer is the person who counts in this. If he wants an innovation, he should have it. If he doesn't, he shouldn't. Yeah, I thought I thought your treatment of that subject in the book was a really valuable um, story. And I'd just say more broadly, one thing I like about your approach and I try to emulate in my approach is the combination of being pro-technology 
and pro the individual's values and and choices. I think that often people who are pro-technology or think of themselves as pro-technology, like they have a grand vision for how the world should work, like the world should have a hyperloop or whatever it is they can imagine, or the world shouldn't use this form of energy versus no, technology is a means, innovation is a means to the ends of these individuals. And so if you have a light bulb and people hate the light and they don't like all the time they have to waste throwing it away, that's not a good innovation just because you think it accomplishes some technical objective. So I, I'm, you know, I really enjoy that you have this being totally pro-science, pro-technology, but being pro uh, the individual. And, and with that, let's just tell everyone, where can people follow you and learn more about you? I know you're very active on Twitter these days. Yeah, I'm at, at Matt W. Ridley on Twitter. Um, I have a, a, a website called rationaloptimist.com or uh, mattridley.co.uk. And uh, it's the same site, basically. And uh, there you can find my blog, which is basically all my journalism uh, and other writings put put together and updated, you know, every few days or so. Um, And the book is called How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. And it's doing really, really well at the moment. It's launched about two weeks ago. uh, And uh, so with one more push from kind readers, it might be a bestseller. And I think it could change the world. Uh, Awesome. Well, we'll do our part to help. Uh, Matt, thanks for coming on the show and thanks for all your good work. Alex, thanks for everything you do. Looking forward very much to the next iteration of your book. I'm looking forward to it being done. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I know the feeling. Thanks again to Matt Ridley for being on the show and make sure to get his book at amazon.com or anywhere else. But why use anything other than Amazon? Uh, I don't know, unless you object to some of their current political stances. And if that's the case, then more power to you. That would be that would be a, a good reason. But yeah, definitely get it somewhere if the ideas we discussed at all intrigue you, because definitely there's so much in that book. I mean, it's super dense. It's not one of these things that's just repeating itself many times and you just read the introduction, you get it. I mean, it's just really jam-packed full of, of very... Uh, I mean, the very dense stories and just has covers so much different historical ground. So I don't know how long that research took. And not only is he doing the research, but you can tell with the research that he's really he's really engaging with the different competing viewpoints and he has interesting positions on the different parts of history and the parts of history where I know the most, like in energy. Uh, I think I couldn't find any inaccuracies from what I know. And usually that's not the case. Usually when I read energy, general books that mention energy, they just get huge things totally wrong because they're trying to be too general. So again, uh, very, very uh, valuable. So that's it for this week's uh, Power Hour. We covered a full hour in the interview, so I'm trying to keep these things to more or less an hour. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. To sign up for my weekly newsletter, go to industrialprogress.com and just enter in your email address for the newsletter. And if you like the work that we do at the Center for Industrial Progress and you want to help fund our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts, you can become an accelerator. Yeah, just go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. And I just want to say thank you to all the accelerators 
it's been incredibly helpful to have your support, particularly in this COVID-19 economy. It's really allowed me to spend a lot more time writing these days. I've been working really intensely and happily on the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0, and I'm making really, really good progress on that. So it's helping that come out sooner. It's helping a whole bunch of other projects, including helping different kinds of candidates this fall, having better pro-energy, pro-freedom messaging. So again, thanks to all of you who have help support us. And if you want to become an accelerator, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Also, I should say, as just one more incentive related to accelerator is I'm going to have my first exclusive accelerator call this month. And it's actually going to be about the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0. And I will share a detailed uh, outline of the book and talk about the new structure, a lot of the new points and and take questions. So if you hear this, you may hear this too late uh, to be live on that call, but I'll at least record my portion of the call so you'll be able to hear that one later. So maybe that's an incentive to some of you. In any case, thanks everyone for supporting this podcast and for uh, in general supporting my work. Next week, I'll be back with another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.